Welcome to the ECA podcast. We discuss the biggest issues in the electrotechnical sector with the industry's leading voices. We encourage you to join the conversation. Send your comments and ideas to podcast at eca.co.uk and help us bring excellence in electrotechnical and engineering services to you. Enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to the ECA podcast. During our hugely popular ECA webinar on the Second Amendment to the 18th edition wiring regulations, BS 7671, which you can now watch at youtube.com forward slash ECA live, our technical team received more than 60 questions from the audience. Our team weren't able to answer every single question during the webinar, so we picked out the top 10 or so most pressing unanswered questions about Amendment 2 and discussed them in this episode of the podcast. Joining me for this discussion are ECA's Energy and Emerging Technology Solutions Advisor, Luke Osborne, and ECA's Technical Manager, Gary Parker. So, Gary, Luke, thank you very much for joining me on the podcast today. So we'll dive straight into the questions. Um, Actually, before we do that, Gary, could you give us a quick rundown of the 18th edition and how long it's been in effect and the rationale behind this big new amendment? Thanks, Omar. So the 18th edition of the requirements for electrical installations has been with us now since 2018. Uh, We had an amendment for that uh, early part of this year in relation to electric vehicles only. And currently is uh, a proposed draft for public comment for Amendment 2, which is on the BSI website and open and able to be commented on until the 11th of December 2020. When will Amendment 2 actually be published and when is the implementation date? So the, the current proposition is that Amendment 2 to BS 7671 will be published on the 28th of March 2022. The electrical installation or any electrical installation erected after the 28th of March 2023 must comply to Amendment 2 and the current proposal is that it should be implemented immediately on the 28th of March 2022. So that that last point, Gary, does that then pose a potential issue to some of our members with equipment having to be installed uh, after that date conforming to Amendment 2? Could that potentially cause issues with contract law? I think it could do, Luke, yes. If you've got an installation that was designed to a previous edition of BS7671, it might have different products, different equipment, different uh, design concepts in it. And if you are then installing after the 28th of March 2023, if that uh, proposal goes through, and it it is still in draft at the moment, if that proposal were to go through, you'd have to install to the requirements of Amendment 2. Okay, yeah, that's uh, that that, that could have big implications. So I guess if we have any members that are concerned on this, as with any other concerns with the DPC, then they should uh, they should definitely put a comment in. Um, via the BSI website. Absolutely, yeah. Um, ECA have also got a really good uh, link on the ECA website, which is eca.co.uk forward slash AMD2. And it does explain a lot of the requirements on there and it has a link to the BSI site for members to comment upon. So right now, the UK is a member of Senelec, which is a European body. Uh, I'll ask you to expand on what Senelec actually is in just a minute. With Brexit coming up, how does that impact our membership of Senelec? Um, Yeah, this has been a a curious point for many people, Uh, but it's been clarified that the UK will remain as part of Senelec until the end of 2021, at which point things may change or they may decide to carry on with membership. That point 
uh, beyond 2021 is unclear at the moment. What is Senelec and what's the uh, the purpose of our membership? Um, essentially, Senelec is um, the, the overall body uh, governing the electrical regulations throughout Europe to essentially uh, allow harmonisation. So it then obviously makes sense if we have a unified set of regulations um, so that when people work in different countries, they know roughly that many of the situations are similar. Uh, countries can have their own national versions. Uh, so there are intricacies for each country that is involved. But in the main, uh, we take a lot of our, um, a lot of the subject matter from BS 7671 from 60364 regulations uh, within Senelec uh, as well as a few others. So getting into a bit more detail about the proposed amendments in Amendment 2, there's a proposal to have a date after which all projects should be installed. How will this work in practice if that comes in? Uh, as we mentioned earlier, the, uh, the, the change to Amendment 2 should be implemented from the 28th of March 2022. But any installation erected after the 28th of March 2023 must be installed to Amendment 2, should the draft go through. And I think this could impact members who are working on longer projects. Some projects might take several years to come from design to construction. And that could have major implications on what they actually install to. It's also got implications in terms of contract law and, and massive implications in terms of cost. Some uh, changes could be quite quite costly and may well uh, impact the installer, not the designer, or may well impact the designer, not the installer or the client. So it could have major implications on contractors who are involved in long-term projects. This one uh, also for you, Gary. Does the uh, draft of Amendment 2 now mandate RCDs on all sockets? Uh, yes, the proposal is in Regulation 411.3.3 that RCD shall be uh, required on all socket outlets. Uh, the, there was a previous emission of RCDs providing that you had a risk assessment in place. But now the proposal is to remove that risk assessment so that any installer uh, working on socket outlets uh, of a current not exceeding 32 amp should fit RCDs rated at 30 milliamp for them. Luke, will this lead to inconvenience issues for, for installers? Yes, certainly. Uh, in certain locations, this could prove uh, really problematic. For example, with data centres, um, server rooms and other critical locations. A lot of these are often um, socketed connections. Um, and this, this could prove yeah, really costly to the end user and essentially to, to the installer if uh, they keep, if keep getting phone calls from a, an upset client um, because their, their mission critical equipment has, uh, yeah, uh, been tripped through uh, inconvenience, yeah, non-issues, so uh, non-safety issues. So, yeah, it's, it's very unfortunate that uh, the mandating of this is coming through, but having the... Um, the option to risk assess out was essential. Perhaps again, another chance to remind listeners to um, head to the DPC and uh, make a submission if they want to have their views heard on, on this matter by the 11th of December. 
Do you want to make creating risk assessments easier and more effective? ERAMS is ECA's online risk assessment and method statement tool that allows any type of contractor to create, amend, store and print general activity-based risk assessments and method statements. ERAMS is free to ECA members and very competitively priced to other businesses. Find out more at eca.co.uk forward slash ERAMS. That's eca.co.uk forward slash ERAMS. Back to you, Gary. What are the proposals relating to AFDDs? So the current proposal in the draft is Regulation 421.1.7 that will mandate our fault detection devices on all single-phase fixed current using circuits with a rated current not exceeding 32 amps. There, there are some exceptions, such as uh, a circuit with a rotating machine or a circuit with a lifting magnet on, etc. Um, but it, the, the proposal is essentially to mandate AFDDs on all single-phase 32-amp or less circuits. So will this require testing for contractors and other any specific in- instruments to do that? Uh, most AFDDs don't require any specific test equipment to be used. A lot of them come with a, a functional test button, a bit like an RCD. You press it and it will test the internal components of the AFDD. Uh, but there wouldn't be any specific test equipment needing to be purchased for, for contractors out there related to AFDDs. So staying on the topic of fault detection devices what are the major benefits and limitations because they're, they're fairly new devices to the uk market aren't they there's a significant portion of uh, fires attributed to electricity in the uk i think it's around 28 percent but it's often unverified as to what the actual cause is it's being used as one of the reasons for putting afddz is the amount of electrical fires but afddz only uh, protect against a very limited uh, scope and uh, this would be either series or parallel arcing, but it's only for loads above a certain point, which isn't applicable for all circuits. And they're horrendously expensive. Uh, you, you can't preclude the use of something due to expense, but once you uh, balance the, the cost of these devices against the prevention and the safety that they would add, the money could be better spent on other pieces of equipment. Um, do you have anything to add on that, Gary? I certainly would like to point out that the British standard for AFDDs, BSEN 62606, does specify that they are only for use in dwellings, yet 7671 seems to suggest that their use should be universal. Um, so that does potentially concern me. Uh, as you say, the, the, the initial expense and the initial cost Um, It will come down, of course, over time, the the cost of the products will uh, decrease. However, um, I think you and I have spoken before with some colleagues, Luke, about the concern of AFDDs falsely rupturing and showing problems where problems may not necessarily exist. Uh, And and who is going to bear that cost? Is it going to be the installer or the client? That's a key point as well. And also, yeah, the, the nuisance driven could be attributed to uh, standard devices as well. For example, um, washing machines, etc., things with motors. Perhaps it would be better for manufacturers of those devices uh, if they're thinking these could be problematic to have them installed in those devices. Could be, yeah. I mean, the, the, we, we've knocked AFDDs quite a lot there, but we have to say there are some potential benefits available too. Uh, they they do protect against a type of fault that is quite hard to detect with a, a regular circuit breaker and a regular RCD. 
Uh, they will give additional protection in some cases. Will they give additional protection in all? Um, or is it better to, to limit their use to very specific areas? Wooden construction buildings perhaps may benefit more than a traditional block and stone constructed building. Um, but currently, the, the proposal is to mandate their use on all circuits not exceeding 32 amp with a few limitations across the whole installation spectrum. So be this a, a, a one bedroom flat or a large steel mill. I, I think there's there's areas where FDDs have certainly got some benefit and merit, but is it right to carte blanche mandate them? Uh, well, we'll wait and see what the comments come in and say, I guess. So in the event that AFDDs are mandated, what would the impact be on electrical installation condition reports or EICRs? Uh, at the moment, because they're still only in draft, these regulations and proposals, we're unsure as to how this impact will roll out. It's very likely, however, that an electrical installation that was perfectly conforming to today's standard, to the 2018 Amendment 1, it will only ever reduce, uh, result in a C3 on a periodic. So there should be very little reason to um, make an installation unsatisfactory, unless, of course, the, uh, the person undertaking the report can see any real reason why they would ever want to mandate AFDDs and put it down as a C2, uh, a building that might be susceptible to fire or might be uh, easily damaged by fire, for instance, could be benefited from by having AFDDs. But in most cases, should this proposal ever go through, uh, it would only likely be a C3 on a periodic. A question now about foundation earthing. One for you, Luke. Should foundation earthing become a requirement, will a DNO ask for evidence of this prior to energisation? Foundation earthing, as we move towards more of a prosumer kind of setup where you have energy storage, generation, etc., etc., and uh, the possibility of, of islanding, so being uh, a building operating off grid. Foundation earthing um, or some sort of TT earthing situation will become um, important. But whether it should be in uh, contained within BS 7671, yeah, no, that we're not certain on that, to be honest, because really this should be something that lays within the building regulations. The, the owner shouldn't be on the electrician uh, to have to be present when concrete's poured, etc., etc., and, and for the, the whole process of installing the foundation earthing. Uh, our position really is that this should lay within building regulations. We, we don't believe the DNO will be asking for evidence of this prior to energisation either. So how about our CBOs? Will they become mandated in installations? Regulation 531.3.2 uses an interesting phrase. It talks about unwanted tripping and how to uh, make sure that installations are designed properly in that sense. And it talks about things that should be considered. And one of them is in Indent 2 uh, of the new proposal to use RCBOs for individual final circuits in domestic installations. Now, it doesn't say you must, it doesn't mandate them, but it does say that these shall be considered. I wonder whether or not this is a, a sensible proposal in that it doesn't really need to be said. I can consider their use now. The client can consider their use now. They can request them. Or we can continue using the dual RCD uh, consumer units we have done for many, many years. I guess it would depend on the nature of the installation, how much division that installation would need. But there isn't a proposal as yet to mandate RCBOs in installations, but it is highlighted that they should be considered. And that might uh, eventually become a mandatory uh, requirement if 
uh, if it was put through. So, Luke, what happened with the requirements for energy efficiency in Chapter 81? As you can see in uh, in the DPC, you've got um, Part 8-2, uh, um, so Chapter 82, essentially. Um, as I mentioned earlier, uh, some of our regulations we take on board from um, the, the Senelec 60364 uh, documents. Um, there was in the Chapter 8 or Part 8 of that, uh, there was Parts 1, 2 and 3. The, the chapter 82 that we've uh, currently got in the DPC, uh, looking at the prosumer side of things, um, that is the adoption of uh, 8-2. So 8-1, which would be chapter 81, we adopted as Appendix 17, uh, so more an informative piece in the initial version of uh, uh, the 18th edition. So and that's where the energy efficiency um, side of things still remains. Um, there are uh, some changes uh, to the DPC version uh, for Amendment 2, um, and uh, it just enhances the, the fact that um, uh, energy efficiency should be considered in the design and also uh, looking at um, the fact that energy efficiency measures should be verified or potentially verified on periodic checks to, to make sure that they're still doing what uh, they've been employed to do. So it is still there. Um, but it is in the form of Appendix 17. A final one uh, for you, Luke. What are prosumers? There's a lot of talk about them and uh, what, what impacts might they have on the industry? Uh, the prosumer is essentially the um, buzzword that's being used for uh, all future builds. Uh, so essentially it's a building uh, that consumes and also produces uh, energy. Uh, so it's incorporating on-site generation, solar PV, uh, battery storage, uh, electric vehicle connections, potentially uh, vehicle to grid, two-way uh, power connections to vehicles, and how that all interacts with the grid. So it helps in the decentralization of energy generation, grid balancing, and uh, should hopefully help to mitigate against uh, expensive uh, grid upgrades going forward, uh, and to also make uh, the, the end user uh, more interactive with how they use and generate their own energy. Uh, so it's it's more conceptual, um, chapter 82, um, and it outlines the different methods of having a prosumer connected and connected to the grid. Uh, so it's not detail heavy, it just gives more of the concepts, but it starts to plant those ideas for the designers and uh, for how things are going to work going forward. Luke, do you think uh, part eight as it stands is going to give rise to um, extra work for our members and potential new work streams and is it is it something that people should be looking into yeah definitely uh we're getting lots of inquiries at the moment from members looking to pivot their businesses towards uh, more of the green technologies coming through and essentially the the prosumer concept is the wrapper it's the overall wrapper for all these things so tying in the the smart technology uh, the monitoring and everything that i mentioned earlier so yeah i think we can almost guarantee there will be a huge amount of work uh, coming to this industry in the immediate future. And thanks to Gary and Luke for taking the time to discuss some of those key points about Amendment 2. As we mentioned, Amendment 2 is now open as a draft for public comment and will remain open until the 11th of December. So do make sure to visit www.eca.co.uk forward slash AMD2 for our guide on how to respond to the DPC and have your voice heard. Finally, don't forget to visit youtube.com forward slash ECA live for a full replay of our Amendment 2 webinar and replays of all our other webinars covering various business, technical and employment topics.
Thank you for listening to the ECA podcast. To continue the conversation or ask questions which may feature in the future podcast episodes, send your comments and ideas to podcast at eca.co.uk. Until the next episode, visit www.eca.co.uk where you can learn more about ECA and the services our team provides. That's www.eca.co.uk.